0: Hello and welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your co hosts Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch. We aim to examine and interrogate information in the UK-China bilateral, speaking to key policymakers, thinkers and individuals in this space.
1: In each episode, we'll discuss the recent events, activities and happenings between the UK and China, what that means and what's going on with some experts, as well as look at some parliamentary output.
0: I think it's worth kicking this podcast off today with a recap of the Investment Summit, which has been all over the papers and the headlines here. Obviously, a whole bunch of very rich people from around the world have gathered in London to pledge uh, investment in the UK. Uh, I'm sure you've been keeping an eye on it, Steve, because the other hat you wear deals a lot with regional investment. What's your sort of top line observations from your end?
1: So I listened to the Prime Minister's introduction to the Investment Summit I also listened to Kemi Badenoch's speech at the Investment Summit, to which essentially they outlined that there would be about roughly £30 billion of extra investment into the UK. I thought it was pretty fascinating bringing together, I think it was like 200 top global CEOs into the UK to basically signal, demonstrate that, you know, the UK is the place to invest. I think they were sort of saying globally. I would struggle with a little bit of the, the headline announcements around this is, you know, the best place around taxes and slight business environment. But, you know, the signals are there, right? We are opening to the world for investment. What I think would be really interesting is to kind of hear from you, Sam, in regards to what actually happened with some of the China announcements. And does any of this specifically relate to China? Because similar to our last episode, we talk about partners. We still are slightly unclear about China's role. Um, Is it a partner or is it a foe?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think not only are we unclear, I think the government is unclear. And that has come across once again, because once again, there have been two China-related headlines from the summit. The first was when the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was directly asked about the now Foreign Secretary David Cameron's China golden era period. And Sunak basically said that the China that David Cameron dealt with is not the China that we're dealing with now. And I think just as a, a sort of point here, you will see that as a comms line the government uses going forward. Uh, consistently. But that then contrasted pretty heavily with what the investment minister, Lord Johnson, of no relation to the former prime minister, Lord Johnson, Lord Johnson said, which was that we actually welcome Chinese EV investment in the UK. And we welcome Chinese EV companies here. And we, we don't want to scare away Chinese investment at all, really. And you sort of get there the contradiction, the, the, the sort of left arm isn't speaking to the right arm in government again, because Sunak doesn't want to cede ground here politically that he is softening or looking to put the financial relationship ahead of anything else. But the investment minister's job is to try and procure investment to the country. And so clearly, they're going to be singing up different hymn sheets. And I think uh, Lord Johnson's comments raise a number of eyebrows among some of the more uh, hawkish China MPs. Although... I would say, luckily for him, two of them, uh, Ian Duncan Smith and Liz Truss, are on vacay in America right now, delivering speeches. So they might not have picked up on the uh, the comments themselves. But it, it was fascinating. Talk about sort of mixed comms. And one of the things that, you know we spoke about before, Steve, which is beyond just China, but businesses love security and they love stable sort of investment arenas. And it's just like a a symptom of a wider issue. I think that we can't even l- line up our comms for this sort of thing. Personally.
1: But I think that's also kind of a, a wider point we've made before about the UK, specifically when it comes to China's sort of cakeism, right? You know, we, we want a cake, but we also want to eat it. And I think it it is a challenge. And so uh, another aspect of this will be, is there going to be hundreds of billions, billions of Chinese investment pouring into the UK? Are we also sending signals to the Chinese community, Chinese business community, that actually this is not the place for you to invest anymore?
0: Yeah, a good question. And I think, you know, I'm not sure if they've done it this year or not, but CCC UK, which I think is the Chinese Chamber of, Commerce, Chamber of UK, Commerce in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Used to publish a report, a sentiment report, I believe, on confidence that Chinese businesses had operating here, what issues they ran into, et cetera, et cetera. And as I can recall, the last one, it was a pretty negative, actually, uh, sentiment and overall uh, feeling. Now, I think that's, again, because a government has failed to differentiate to Chinese investors, what they really do see as critical sectors, although the NSIA does that, what they see as critical sectors and what aren't critical sectors. And not only that, but if they invest in these non-critical sectors and political um, attention comes upon them, the government will go will not go out of its way to say, oh, actually, this is one of the areas we've deemed as being not sensitive. It just feels like it's a free for all. If you're a Chinese company here and you've invested in I don't know, a cardboard box manufacturing, and an MP decides that that could be a security risk at some level, it's very unlikely the government's going to swing out for you and say, "Well, actually, we don't think that's the case.'re Just going to ignore it and allow you to sort of fend for yourself." That, that is just the nature of geopolitics and economics, but it, it, you know, to your point, Steve, like, it, doesn't, it, it, it almost would suggest to me that it's not a priority right now to attract Chinese uh, FDI into the U.K. Many others, you know, there's been lots of talk about Japan, Korea, but China clearly does not rank, in in my opinion, from my observations, and perhaps you have a different view on this, as a priority place to be trying to attract investment from.
1: I thought what was fascinating, when I was at the chamber, we would do a sentiment survey, so pulting British businesses' views in China, and we looked at also the Chinese Chamber of Commerce in the UK's sentiment survey, uh, pulsing their perceptions of the UK market, and it was almost the, the pessimism, was almost identical in regards to Chinese businesses in the UK did not know if they wanted further investment. They didn't really feel welcomed, And so there was this sort of juxtaposition and it ties back into actually rhetoric. Rhetoric and signalling have such a massive impact when it comes to business confidence and business investment. And that's sort of what we've constantly talked about in regards to certainty or sort of more clarity around market. So Speaking of which, I think it's also pretty interesting now to move on to rhetoric, and that is David Cameron. So Lord Cameron gave his first full interview since becoming Foreign Secretary to the BBC. Um, As you can imagine, Foreign Secretary, he covered a multitude of issues, everything from climate change to the Ukraine war, general foreign policy. But unsurprisingly for this podcast, we're going to be sticking and focusing on China. So the headlines, unsurprisingly, will all be around Cameron wants more engagement with China um, and his involvement around the port project, to which we are absolutely going to get onto. But I think, for me, Sam and you, and you pointed this out a little bit earlier in the podcast. It's his stance. This has clearly changed a lot since he became since his time as his prime minister. So engagement, yes, but we are not dealing with the same China anymore. China, in his words, has become a lot more aggressive. Um, He he mentioned in this in this interview, wolf warrior diplomacy, Hong Kong Uyghurs. And certainly for me, and this was the kind of the the things I focused on was there was a lot more emphasis on security and protection rather than his previous policy of trade and investment. And I think, you know, he mentioned something about loading up planes and getting out to China. So he also said, you know, we need to work a lot closer with allies um, essentially in response to China. Right. So the US, the EU. But he didn't get away from we need to engage with China. Um, but I, I really saw a very clear shift from golden era language. Um, but yeah, I just wanted over to you. What's what's your assessment of maybe that interview in his first two weeks since we're yeah. breaking everything down?
0: <laughs> so the, the first thing to say is that every single line that David Cameron has taken, the Lord Cameron has taken there as foreign secretary, will have been strategically formulated by Downing Street and by the Foreign Office and perhaps by focus groups and by spat, special advisors, SPADs, that sort of thing. So this is this is not just, as, as you know, Steve, this is not just off the cuff, like two men hosting a podcast. This is sort of de- deliberately formulated. And so the uh, the strategic line here is that China has changed from when I was operating with China. And I'm now very much in the present day where we view China as an epoch-defining challenge. But we have to work with it, right? So that's that's the view that he's putting out. That's the view that Downing Street is putting out. I think if you were to speak to a number of Westminster politicians and activists, the two criticisms leveled at David Cameron, um, the first is around he might try and push for closer economic relations with China. I I think that's slightly over-exaggerated, personally, because it's not really the remit that the foreign secretary has, especially not as they head towards a general election in the next 12 months. But the second one, which I think is perhaps more valid, actually, is what was Cameron doing? having left Downing Street to now, because we know he had a private dinner with Xi in China. We know he was involved in what looked to be a BRI project in Sri Lanka. There's like a a list of things, and that's not even touching on some of his other uh, sort of scandals in that space. So they, I, I, I think, very fairly are asking for a lot more transparency and clarity around here. Again, I think they sometimes wrap that very fair request in uh, exaggerated caricatures, you know, Beijing's man in London is an eye roll inducing characterization because it's very childish, you know, and it also diminishes the very fair asks by that by that crowd. But I, I think to, to the point about what does that interview illustrate for us? First of all, he's in a place where he's confident enough to start to deal with those questions head on rather than just ignoring them, and second of all, it shows us what the government's comms line is on this going forward, at least until if there is another uh, the next scandal blows up on this specific thing here. And there's one last point I would also make on the on the Cameron return, which is interesting, which is you started to see the soft pitch for a Cameron visit to China. And that was actually made by the former national security advisor Mark Sedwell in an article on the Telegraph, which which was titled quite grandly something like US-China War is not inevitable, which you know I, I agree with. And in the crux of the article, he talks about how diplomacy means you have to speak to to countries you don't necessarily get on with. And for that reason, he actually supports uh, a Lord Cameron visit to China. Now, Mark Sedwell is not uh, and would never claim to be, you know, Mr. Influence in Westminster anymore. That's not his role. It's not his job. He's actually with Rothschilds as in the geopolitical section there. But that's still a very high-level person to be soft-rolling and normalizing the discussion around that potential visit to China. How likely it is, you know, <laughs> we, we can we can put money on it, Steve. I'm not sure either way, and I'm a terrible betting man. But it, it's interesting. That's becoming normalized already within sort of two to three weeks from arriving in post.
1: But I think that's also quite interesting because it also picks up on China's stance in regards to the foreign secretary or Cameron coming in as the foreign secretary. Firstly, a bit of confusion. How can a prime minister come back and be foreign secretary? But we've, we've sort of explained that. As you can imagine, the Chinese are picking up on the golden era. I don't think there's naivety in regards to we're moving back to the golden era. I think they know that time has shifted, sands have shifted and, it, and it's a slightly different environment. But bringing Cameron back sort of emphasises to the Chinese side that there actually might be a more friendly approach. There might be reduced tensions in regards to how Cameron would approach some of the, um, you know, being a being the prime minister, have dealt with China for, for a multitude of years, obviously ushering in the golden year. There would be a reduction in tension, understanding of how to possibly frame some of the tough conversations both publicly and and, and, and privately um, but ultimately I think also China does understand I think China understands and this is maybe my own personal opinion I don't think this is an appointment purely around foreign policy I do still think this is a, a, a political position to bring back in a more centrist approach to the Conservative Party which is all around the elections um, which are coming up next year I would love to get into um, elections next year Sam because there's going to be Quite a few important democratic elections taking place, but maybe maybe we'll do that in a prediction episode. <laughs> that sounds
0: good. Yeah, a couple of whiskeys deep.
1: <laughs> One of the other things I want to quickly touch upon um, is, and that's related to kind of some of the things we've just discussed, is China's business environment, especially in relation to foreign businesses, but also international relations. So there's a couple of things we I'd love to touch on very very quickly. Earlier this month. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, who's the new Prime Minister, relatively new, uh, visited Beijing after what they're calling of years of the thawing of the relationship. But essentially, this is all around the previous Prime Minister administration called for a COVID inquiry, an inquiry into the origins of COVID. China did not like that and essentially just froze them out. Right. Ministerial engagement was completely suspended. Um, lots of businesses, lots of industries were caught in a crosshair. So banning imports, everything from, you know, wine to lobster to, you know, beef, and detaining some journalists as well. Not directly, they say, uh, attached to that, but I think you can read between the lines. Anyway, um, Albany's visit clearly demonstrates that, you know, they China wants a toning down of this geopolitical rhetoric where they are sort of antagonizing and, and sort of really Goes against sort of the global Western movement against China. So, just coming to you then quickly, Sam, like, have you got any insight on the visit, sort of the main outcomes?
0: So, it's been very divisive from what I read and the analysts that I follow uh, because it, there's sort of two schools of thought. First, is this China beginning to moderate some of its more outlandish, quite aggressive, pugnacious wolf warrior diplomacy? And has it sort of, quote unquote, seen the light and thought actually this is no way to engage with the the Western world and Australia? Or is it in the view of some analysts, actually just the Chinese playing the Australians and other Western countries to sort of tune of, oh, we're going to soften our image, but still do many things that are actually damaging for you as a democracy and for you as a liberal democracy and and, and for the overall international rules-based order. Now, I, I think Albanese would say, it was a very successful visit and actually anything that helps reduce the end product of overall conflict or an invasion of Taiwan or nuclear proliferation, all that sort of stuff is a good thing. And anything that helps secure trade between the two countries and, you know, therefore jobs and job creation and all that sort of stuff that prime ministers care about is a good thing. But I think, I think it's actually important to contextualize it within the other five eyes countries too, you know, We've had Janet Yellen, uh, the U.S. Uh, secretary, basically that their, their chancellor, as I understand it, has been out to China a number of times. There's been pretty normalized diplomatic relations between uh, the U.S. and uh, Australia and New Zealand and China for, for a while now, or getting there. We in the UK are lagging behind. Um, again, I'm not going to waste more time speaking about the fact that the only two cabinet secretaries who've gone out so far since it became prime minister have actually been shifted off external facing roles. So, you know, if we're just looking at this as an isolated visit, I think it does leave a bit of head scratching. But in the context of where the UK, Australia, the US, other regional partners are going, I think it makes a lot of sense.
1: Well, then let's just take that a little bit further, because this week, uh, the China-Britain Business Council, CBBC, which for all intents and purposes is the trade promotion wing of the United Kingdom, their chair, uh, Sherrod Cooper-Cole, was in, was in China, and he had some pretty high-profile meetings. Pretty high level engagement from um, provincial mayors, party secretaries, right their way up to uh, the vice premier Hu uh, at the Great Hall of the People. So, what do you think that signals? Then, so obviously this is not government, but this is you know the the, the China Britain Business Council.
0: Yeah, so it's hard to know what it signals beyond a beginning of a resumption, I guess, of, of trade discussions. Because again stuff like Jetco and the EFD haven't, haven't taken place. Those sort of economic financial dialogues and, and similar discussions between the UK and China for some years now. In fact, they were spiked a couple of years ago, even past last year. So it's been left to places like the CBBC to try and have those discussions, I imagine, between Chinese officials and UK business. Uh, I'm not privy to what they've gone on and what they've said beyond what i've read in the public domain um, but you know for the reasons you've outlined there that's quite an impressive set of senior meetings and I wonder what information they'll be bringing back to brief ministers here and to brief around the sort of uh different stakeholder engagement circles if if nothing else uh, you know we discussed this before Steve, but one of the essential reasons for having people on the ground in China who can come back to the u k is because you can get a real life snapshot idea of what it's like on the ground even if you are being handheld through every single diplomatic event of that day you are still getting at some level whether it's just looking out the window or whatever it is a snapshot that is otherwise blocked to you uh, as an outside observer um you know and, and i'd be interested to know your view on this steve if i was to say to you how frequently do you have to visit china or sorry how many months can lapse before you lose track of what it's like in china what would you put that number on
1: I think it's very difficult to say. I, look, I've been out of China for a year, and I already feel out of touch. You know, on the ground, in market experience is so critical. Uh, my worry has always been that we are losing an enormous amount of expertise on the ground. You know, how on earth do you bridge that um, divide between you know people to people cultural exchanges, uh, business to business cultural exchanges? I, I, I genuinely do worry about that moving forward. So, you know, the only aspect is you really do need um, trusted. Uh, insights on the ground, as well as nothing will defeat getting out there, um, you know, feeling it, touching it, understanding it, really sitting down face to face with the people that you, who you are meeting. You know, three years COVID, China completely shut themselves off. They can say what they want, but they shut themselves off. They shut the borders to the outside world. And that has had an enormous impact. That, you know, obviously they opened the borders and, you know, they expected everything to rebound. We've had Zoom. We understand how this stuff works. No, that, that damaged China. And I don't know if they will ever recover from what happened because of COVID.
0: I agree with all of that. And I think the difficult dimension is... I'm increasingly speaking to people who are about to go to China or who have just come back from China, and even in today's FT, actually, I think it was the front page of the FT, the story about KPMG and Deloitte, I think it was, who have encouraged their workers to take burner phones to Hong Kong, is the feeling that you aren't safe in China, and this is the, this is the issue that China, in my opinion, has done very little to remedy. You know, it's it's all well and good, you and I talking about the need to have people on the ground who can come back and say, this is what's happened in the last six months since you were here, or this has been three years, whatever time frame it is. But if they just don't feel safe going there, whether that's students through to business people, I, I just can't see how we get that back on track because it's, not, it's nothing we can do on our side of that makes sense, the bilateral, in my opinion, that requires a, a lot of difference on their side. What's, what's your view on that? The way that
1: China sets policy is very different to any other country in the world. One, they just set the policy and then figure out how they're going to do it. Whereas everyone else in the world figures out how you're going to do it, then sets the policy. So I think China knows they have got an enormous problem now with foreign business, lack of trust, lack of investment, lack of engagement. um, And that's only going to deteriorate, not to mention the complete falling off a cliff of foreign businesses, foreign foreign nationals in China, foreign nationals learning China, foreign nationals that want to engage with China, you know, and that's not just around the sort of global West, that's across the board. Um, so they know that they've got an enormous policy. And that's sort of why I mentioned the Albanese aspect of things. That's why I've mentioned the the, the, the China Britain Business Council, because they, they know that they, they need to engage with foreign businesses, they need to engage um, with, around international policy and they're just trying to figure out the implementations and they make these grand gestures. Therefore, you know, you, you know, we're, we're back to working again. Well, that's not really how it works in the real world. The other aspect of things, which is just ties directly into what I've just said, is China is making these statements and these signals. And one of the big things in China was around visa-free travel for about six countries. Um, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain and Malaysia. Now, this is a temporary measure Um, and anyone who's had to deal with visas working in and out of China will know this is you know it's always been a bit of a a bit of a challenge but essentially it's not you know it's not free visas it's essentially they're giving uh, visa-free access for 15 days if you're traveling in for business or tourism really sure how many people are traveling in for tourism but anyway around business or you're visiting friends or family things like that now it's a very clear signal, look, we're open, you know, we want you to come in as foreign nationals, foreign businesses. Um, for me, I think this it's just a reasonable visa policy, right, that, you know, would attract investment, engagement. Um, and all it took was a major pandemic and a major economic <laughs> crisis to uh, to realise this. But I think this is kind of the, orig- the the point I'm trying to make is, China is very clearly trying to send signals that, you know, the business environment is open for foreign businesses, is open for foreign nationals. But I think they are really struggling to actually sell that to foreign businesses and foreign nationals.
0: I completely agree with your analysis and your, your sort of uh, point there. And, and I agree, like you just need to have that underpinned by a level of trust. And right now, among a lot of the businesses that I speak to and the people that I speak to, there is fear and a lack of trust. And that, will, that can only be remedied by the Chinese side. You know, there's no, we can't inject any more complexity into it than that is. It is that simple. So it'll be fascinating to see how or if that changes fast enough, really, for the Chinese side.
1: So maybe moving us on to our final topic, Sam, of fear and trust. Uh, <laughs> the UN's climate summit, uh, their climate conference, the COP28, which is going to start on the 30th of November. So it's taking place in that famous environmentally oil state of Dubai, uh, which is in the middle of the desert, and people will be flying in from all over the world to discuss uh, climate uh, crisis. Uh, but look, I'm just being a bit cynical there, but it's <laughs> going to be bringing together countries. I think there's about 70,000 uh, delegates to discuss and negotiate measures to reduce global warming, uh, carbon emissions, and indeed climate change. The main topic, I think, going into the conference will be how do we bridge that gap between current emissions and what is needed? So I'd like to introduce Callum Douglas, a sustainability and biodiversity expert with over 20 years working experience in China and Asia. He is currently based in Beijing. When I was at the chamber um, and I needed any questions on the green economy, sustainability or COP, I would always go to to Callum. So not much has changed a few years on. So Callum, let's get straight into things. Um, Can you just kind of just give us a bit of an overview about the main themes heading into COP28? Maybe some of the major predictions that may come out of it and sort of hopes of what could potentially happen
2: over in Dubai. Sure. Thanks, Steve. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Great to reconnect. So yes, the COP is happening in Dubai. Um, it's happening under the umbrella of what's called the global stock this year. So you know, the, the Paris Agreement was there to keep the increase in global average temperatures to well below two degrees and then to try to limit this to 1.5 degrees. So the global stock take, it's kind of like the report card on the collective progress towards limiting the global temperature increase. So there's a few themes that will run through the COP. The first and really high on the agenda is transitioning to clean energy. So that's really phasing out fossil fuels. And that's that's very um, contested wording, uh, which will be up for discussion a lot. And no doubt there will also be a lot of conversation around tech and innovation for that. So the biggest hope there really is keeping 1.5 alive, really. Um, even if we overshoot that for a period and return to 1.5, it's still just within reach. Um, There's hopes for a pledge to include um, tripling global renewable energy capacity by 2030. And then energy efficiency is also really important. So another one is to double the rate of energy efficiency improvements. The other big thing we are hearing a lot about is finance. So there's still old, old promises that need to be delivered and a framework set for this new deal on climate finance, which needs to be, it needs to be affordable. It needs to be accessible um, for developing countries as well. So there's a famous $100 billion for developed countries. It's been very slow to arrive. And this has contributed to a lot of tensions previously. So we know that you know, climate finance demand will only grow as the climate crisis unfolds, really, over the next you know several years. So um, we'll be seeing a lot more need for this. And a big part of that is a loss and damage fund um, at 27.
1: Maybe just to jump in, Callum. So it's a two-week two negotiations. That's taking place. So, I guess one of the questions specifically for us on this podcast is, what does China want from COP twenty eight? And another question: Why do they consider themselves a developing nation?
2: Yeah, great. Two great questions. I think China, China always can give some surprises at the COP. So, I won't be making any outright predictions on what they'll say. But I think it's it's likely to, or it's fair to think that a lot of the recent discussions and agreements with the US and China will kind of pave the way what we expect to see from them at the COP. It's, it's possible also we might see a tough line on language around phasing out fossil fuels. That's a bit to do with domestic policy as well. But on the other hand, climate action is really important to China, both in terms of domestic and foreign policy. And they've got a very, very high sense of accountability, both to domestic and foreign players there. So, you know, China's also very aware of how it's perceived by the global south. And it's kind of interesting to your point, Steve, because they're in solidarity, they stand in solidarity with the developing world. But as you say, their claimed developing nation status does make this quite tricky for them because they need to be seen also as taking responsibility in line with being the world's biggest emitter of emissions. So, you know, in terms of outcomes, I think some of these, like I said, will be guided by recent developments in Sino-US agreements. I think we'll see strong support for the tripling of renewable capacity globally, for example. But I think the really important thing to remember with with China negotiations on climate and, and really consistently in their climate policy is that China frequently under promises and overdelivers on their climate ambitions. And that's something we see again and again. So, for example, it's looking really likely that China will exceed its own targets of reaching 1200 gigawatts of wind and solar by 2030. And there's a lot of speculation now that China will also peak emissions well ahead of their target as well. So delivering on targets is really important to the Chinese government. Um, And it's often really unimpressed by other governments as well who make large target announcements, but lack policy and implementation capacity to follow through with these, um, not to mention those who backpedal on um, key commitments. I think in the climate change talks and framework, China identifies and is, is able to pass as a as a developing nation um, and that's very difficult to understand for many because it is it is you know, second largest economy in the world um, but that's got to be taken into the concept, context of it also being a you know a massive country with a lot of disparity across across its regions and a huge population. so when you look at the the GDP per capita of China in 2022 I think it was around twelve thousand seven hundred. Dollars, um, And you compare that to an equivalent in the UK of uh, $46,000 in the same year. So, you know, it's, it's roughly a quarter of that. So, I mean, looking at the per capita status, that's why the, the developing nation status um, is, is important to, to China. Um, obviously, the implications of that are also around climate finance funds, um, but also for China's 2060 date for getting to zero emissions, um, there's often questions as to why the largest emitter in the world can have a, a net zero date 10 years later than others. Um, and that's because it's a middle income um, developing country um, by, by the standards. So it gets the extra 10 years to deliver on that. Um, again, within that, I'd, I'd hold out hope for the under promising and over delivering um, history that, that China's had, but um, predictions aren't mine to make.
1: So my experience from coming back to the UK, people are so wary and cynical of China, specifically when it comes to net zero, when it comes to sustainability. So just going a little bit further into that, could you just explain what the 2030, 2060 goals are? And because there seems like this enormous juxtaposition, China's the largest, uh, has the largest capacity of of both clean and dirty energies, responsible, I think it's about 30% of global emissions. But on the other hand, it's also producing the most amount of renewable energy. So can you just kind of give a bit of a, I don't know, a myth busting
2: for our audience. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right, Steve. There are a lot of that uh, juxtapositions there to consider. So, you know, China's simultaneously um, classified as a developing nation in in the climate talks. It's the world's largest emitter, the second largest economy. So it's a really complex um, scenario there. Now, the the 3060 goals, so 2030 and 2060 goals are incredibly significant for China's domestic policy and a huge driver for climate action in China as well. So, essentially, the targets are for China to peak emissions before 2030 and then to reach net zero emissions before 2060. And that, that gap then between 20 and 30 and 60 represents a really massive and rapid structured decarbonization from when they hit the peak until reaching zero. So, unfortunately, what we've seen in 2022, uh, which isn't going in the right direction at all, was 150 gigawatts of coal power projects being permitted. Um, over the year. And as a result of increasing coal consumption, China's emissions until the end of the second quarter of this year have rebounded um, above the record level seen in 2021. So that's, that's not going the right way. But then on the positive side and going totally in the opposite direction, China's investment in electric vehicles and renewable energy in 2022 was equal to the rest of the world combined. So they're making massive investments in that. As a project or projection by the Global Energy Monitor, um, saying that 750 gigawatts of solar and wind projects are likely to be completed by 2025. So, adding that to more than 500 gigawatts of wind and solar capacity in China already, the country is really likely to achieve its 2030 target of 1,200 gigawatts of wind and solar five years in advance. So, you know that means that wind and solar couldn't could not only exceed China's 2030 targets ahead of schedule but also surpass what several forecasts are suggesting that China would need to achieve carbon neutrality by mid-century. So the carbon brief, just to give another um, example of this, because I think the facts are really important, um, they've done some research which shows that there's been so much wind and solar built out that China's emissions could peak in 2024 if they continue to grow at the same pace. So make that uh, of that what you will. There's a huge juxtaposition. You're absolutely right.
0: So one of the things we often speak about in the UK-China bilateral, Callum, and the government is very keen to express, is that although China represents a challenge in many forums, climate change is one area they're really keen to work with China on. But given what you've just said there, and the immense progress that China is clearly making on a number of renewable fronts, where uh, where do you see areas for collaboration between the UK and Chinese government, or maybe to take a step back, the US and Chinese government too, on climate change?
2: yeah great questions two questions and two really important stakeholders obviously <clears throat> as well so from from a uk perspective i think there are you know there are really great opportunities for collaboration um as well one of the, the themes in cop28 which is important and i didn't mention earlier is also nature you know we've got 37% of climate solutions can be addressed by nature based solutions so that might be forest conservation restoration could be regenerative agriculture um and you know with china's role as the president of the un's convention on biological diversity which was cop15 in montreal last year um, that really suggests continuing leadership from china and a much more proactive approach so they really take this global biodiversity framework seriously they want to make sure it succeeds now at cop28 it's likely that china's going to want to see more implementation and you know the uk has some really fantastic expertise in terms of excellent conservation NGOs that both China and the UK could benefit from um, in learning and um, achieving their shared nature and biodiversity goals. So nature is definitely one. Um, Renewable energy still, absolutely. Offshore wind, um, a huge strength um, in the UK and um, obviously a huge growth area in in China as well. So that's the UK site. I'm happy to jump into the US um, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. So really interesting development and and a great question to raise Sam, because just in November this year, there was a very significant development in Sino-US relations. Um, and despite, you know, very, very difficult relations over several years and global politics has been very challenging, as you've said, um, what we saw a couple of weeks ago was the Sunnyland Statement from the US, which was put together by John Kerry. The climate envoy from the U.S. and his um, Chinese counterpart, Xie Jianhua. This is a really significant um, deal. The, the headlines of it were you know, fairly high level to support the global tripling of clean energy capacity, as we mentioned earlier, and then addressing methane emissions, which are really important too. These are the world's top two emitters and the top two economies effectively now sending a very strong signal ahead of the COP. So you might remember that similar high-level China-US talk happened uh, kind of a year ahead of the Paris Agreement. And Christiana Figueres, who was the UN Climate Chief at the time, has since said that she really felt this had a very positive effect in terms of reaching that Paris Agreement because it sent such a strong signal to developed countries behind the US and developing countries behind China, really showing that climate action needs to ramp up. And I think we're seeing that again through this statement. I think behind, behind the headlines... And Lee Schwar from the Asia Society has done some really great writing on this. There were two huge um, impacts from this. One, the first time that China has committed to develop what's called economy wide emissions reduction targets for their 2035 commitment. So that means they're covering every sector of the economy and all the greenhouse gases, because previously um, sectors weren't specified and they only covered carbon. So that leaves some of the non carbon GHGs out, including methane, which has a warming effect of more than four times that of carbon um, out of scope. So that subnational cooperation is, is really important. And then both sides also talk about energy transition. So moving away from burning fossil fuels and towards consuming more renewable energy. Now, there was very careful but interesting language there suggesting that China is open to contemplating post-peak emission reductions in its power sector in the 2020s. And that's really significant previously, they've never mentioned that before 2030. So it's showing they have confidence also in a peak um, in emissions before, before 2030. Cool. <laughs> I think that's a lot of the, the problem, isn't it? With, um, with the way information is, is shared at the moment, you know, it's, it's not easy to get a lot of the stories of, of some of the really significant developments we see in China out. You know, One in three car sales in China was an electric vehicle. Uh, last year. There's, there's dozens and dozens of these um, examples. Um, and, you know, we're certainly not saying that China has all the answers, and there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done by all nations at the moment. Uh, but there's an awful lot to learn from. And uh, that's why dialogue between parties is so important, both at the bilateral level and also at the multinational level at the COP. So, Steve. Th- that was obviously
0: fascinating. What what would sort of your important takeaway from what Callum said there be? Obviously, there's lots of new information to both of us, but what, what sort of stuck with you from that? I think just from my time in China,
1: it's, it is that juxtaposition in regards to clean and dirty energies. It is by far the biggest polluter on the planet, um, 30% of global carbon emissions. But on the other side, it's putting more sustainable green energy onto their grid than the UK has as a grid um, every year. Um, that's my understanding. So it's very hard not to be cynical, but it's also very hard not to be positive in regards to what
0: they're doing. I don't know. What about your assessment? I think that the thing that I found fascinating was this idea that China is very aware of what the sort of so-called Global South perceives it to be doing and thinks it's doing. And if there was one lesson that I would try and push on British policymakers to take, it's that we can utilize China's uh, fears and hopes with the Global South to do to hopefully partner with China on various things in front of the Global South, work on projects together with China. And if China fails to meet its side of the criteria on that, then it's not us judging them. It's their huge target audience of Global South countries. I, I see that as a beneficial thing for actually, basically every single person and every single country involved. Perhaps I'm naive, but that's my my current gut feeling on those issues.
1: And I think that's also what kind
0: of meant when
1: he, he said, you know, they are ahead of their actual climate ambitions, you know, to to peak in 2024. 2024. So that would be fascinating. Um, But let's see, you know, it's a two-week summit with lots of negotiations to take place. So kind of let's see what the wording comes out. Let's see what some of the commitments come out. Um, Sam,
0: you are off to Taiwan. You're off to uh, Taipei, I believe, uh, next week. I am indeed. I am indeed. So next time we speak, I might be about 18 stone larger because I will have been eating and hoovering every single thing i can get my hands on from the second i touch down in Taipei. but i'm fascinated i cannot wait to get there my first time I, I it's my first time back in asia since i left in 2019 and every single atom in my body is screaming with excitement to get out of there i cannot cannot wait
1: amazing well can't wait to hear about the trip
0: and um, i'll speak to you next week speak to you next week steve cheers mm-hmm.